Well, good morning. Good morning. I bring greetings from Trinity, and you will see them this evening. You can return it right then in person. And what a wonderful day. Uh, really encouraged with the Sunday school. My amazement in Christ is greater. My view of Christ is higher, and my heart is warmer. We went, you went from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. <laughs> so uh, marvelous. I encourage you in that study. Uh, fantastic, appropriate. A little bit about myself. Um, I walked the aisle in 1975. I started reading the New Testament. I believe somewhere in 76, the Lord saved me. It was in 1987, I came to Trinity Baptist Church in those days, and I was a tongue-speaking Armenian parachurch Christian. <laughs> and what happened? I heard the voice of Christ in the exposition of the word. And that changed everything. And that's what we're praying for this morning, is to hear Christ as his word is proclaimed. Hear Christ calling his sheep, leading us forward, and causing us to stand for him. I am an engineer, aerospace engineer, 18 years on space shuttle, and, seven, and 20 years now on satellites. So if you hear a nerdy example that comes, uh, you'll know why that is there. It's, it's part of who I am. With all these things, let us turn to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. And as an introduction, I have pulled a lot from John Flavel in his book, Keeping the Heart. And I've interacted with this material. I have found it profitable. This is actually uh, not my first time preaching this. I'm encouraged by Spurgeon who said, if you can't preach it twice, it probably wasn't worth preaching once. And uh, this has been repeatedly encouraging to me. It's one of those things you mull over. It helps your heart. John says he prays for three types of people. He prays for the wicked and he, he mourns for them, considering that if they continue, they will be eternally damned. And so his heart would go out for them and he would pray for them. He said he would pray for a false professor he would both weep and tremble, considering that if they continue, they must be doubly damned with the knowledge as well as their own sin. And then he says for believers in the battle, he says he would weep no less than any of the rest, because though they themselves will be saved, yet their example strengthen the bonds of death on the other two. And we can point to true believers, can't we? And how the enemies of God have been given a chance, an opportunity to exult over their failure. David when he falls. Moses when he strikes the rock. We have Peter denying Christ. We have joyless Christians that sometimes we come in contact with and people say, well, there's apparently nothing there. And so there's this great need to study our own heart. There's this great need we carry with us to guard our hearts so that we will be in a place where we show Christ to the world. We are not giving a place to the enemy, where we are growing, where we are delighting, where we are promoting his wonderful name where we live. And so this, this study is, is very gripping to me. This study was also really taken to my heart in a particular event that happened. It was very unusual for me. Every year the elders we go off from a Wednesday to a Saturday. We pray over the congregation. We consider each person. We plan out the new year. 
And we all sat down to pray. And almost instantly, for a 10-minute period, this is very unlike me, there was just this flow of wicked thoughts that so crossed my mind, it made it very difficult to pray for those I love. Usually when I think of our congregation, I'm thinking, oh, this person is so gifted in this area. This one is you know, delighting in this area. You, know, you, you feel small when you consider how the Lord has graced his people. And yet these ugly thoughts were just bombarding me. And I was in the middle of the study at the time, and I was thinking, how do I guard my heart? Is this just some kind of weird brain burp that is giving me these wicked thoughts that are harsh towards others? Because it just turned on like a switch. Is it perhaps a spiritual force whispering in my ear so that I would be distracted from this duty of prayer? And I began to realize with this study that that doesn't matter. Whether it's my brain or an outward source, I'm not the conspiratorial type. You know, I usually think there's something else. I'm an engineer. I'm looking for that thing that creates it, right? But what happened is I said, I'm going to guard my heart. I'm going to be jealous over my heart. And this is all from this study. And I said, I'm going, when those thoughts come in, I'm going to confess it as evil, and I'm going to run to my Lord and ask him to work with this element happening as well as bring in this time of prayer. And so if it's my own mind, it needs to be washed. I'm going to run to Christ. If it's a, some form of spiritual attack, because for 10 minutes it was on and then it was off. It's very strange. And at least have the enemy know that if he's going to press me in that way, he's actually going to push me to Christ. That's what happens when we face troubles and our heart is set to be guarded because we'll take it to the presence of Christ and say, Lord, I'm leaning on you more. That's a wicked thought. I'm going to lean on you. Wash it from me. I'm going to endeavor after you. So even the enemy hopefully stops because he says, well, I keep pushing him towards the Lord in that experience. So studying our heart before the world, guarding our heart for our own walk in Christ, very important. Let us go ahead and read Proverbs 23 and pray. Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words brought forth by your Holy Spirit through a father to his son, giving him the promises to seek wisdom, above all, to gain insight, to have understanding, to have it as a garland over his heart, a protection for his soul. And now you bring these precious words to us. We ask that you would cause us to hear the voice of Christ as these are put forth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So my message, I have three parts to it. When it comes to guarding the heart, I want to look at the foundation that we will stand on to look at our own heart, the actions that we are encouraged to take in guarding our heart, and then also the reality of keeping the heart. So our first area is the foundation to keep your heart. First of all, what do we mean when we talk about the heart? Romans 1.21 says, their foolish hearts were darkened. So when we talk about our heart, we are talking about our understanding, how we perceive things around us. Psalm 119, verse 11, stored up in your heart. I want to store up your word in my heart. So we have the memory is involved. And then as I get older and as I hang out with people that are older, we're always talking about memory. But memory is a part of our heart. It's the recall. It's the perception that comes with it. 
This is what we mean when we're talking about our heart. 1 John 3.20, if our heart condemns us, we can go to our Heavenly Father, for He is greater than our hearts. And so a heart can also be our conscience. So our understanding, our memory, and our conscience give us a composite, little deeper definition of what we mean when we say heart. Another foundational item is to understand that we are in transition. It's helpful to understand that a developing situation is our case over a static one. It's not that by evolution you have had millions of years getting here and you are moving so very slowly in your makeup that you can essentially consider yourself a solid, inactive being. But rather, we have come from a place of sin. How is it that we have a heart that longs for those things that are upright and good, but we have this trailing corruption that we do battle with? And I love the reality of Scripture that it's always interjecting what I will call a sense of realism in how we deal. How do we have these great blessings, these great truths, and yet we wrestle with these other things? And the Bible answers that by our fall. The Bible answers that by the grace that is given to us in Christ. John, John Flavel says, the heart of man is the worst part of him before regeneration and the best part of him after. It is the seed of principles and it's the fountain of errors. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. And the greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. And so we are in this transition stage, and so it just heightens our sense that we need to be guarding our own hearts. What is commended and urged here in this passage? We are urged to perform a duty with all vigilance. In fact, the Hebrew is very emphatic. The Hebrew is saying, keeping with all keeping. Imagine keeping a double guard over your heart. When Paul was chained, it was often more than, more than one soldier, right? They didn't just assign one soldier, take him to Rome and, and let him speak. No, he was surrounded. He, was, he had a multiple guards surrounding him. But we are urged to perform this duty with all vigilance, to keep with all keeping. By saying all these things, another foundational issue is that we are not implying we have sufficiency of ourself to keep our heart. We are to set ourselves on the task of guarding our heart, but we in ourselves don't have that sufficiency. We place ourselves in the care of our shepherd. In fact, that was a wonderful song that we just sang, that he found us. It was 11 years after I believe I was saved, I, I learned that he found me, it wasn't me finding him. And in this case, very similar, we are not sufficient of ourselves, but we entrust ourselves into his care, who is able to keep hold of us. Finally, in the foundations, as we look at the heart, what is the motivation that we should have moving into this area? It's very forcible. It is very weighty. We are to guard our heart, for from it flow the issues of life. It is so very core. If you're going to, if a, if a nation revolves around money, then Fort Knox is what you protect, isn't it? And if all the issues of your life flow from your heart, put the guard around your heart. Grow in your heart. 
And the next steps will be how do we do that? What are the actions we can take to grow in our heart? So there's our foundation that we will stand on as we understand what the heart is, what our sufficiency is and isn't. And we'll move into the area now of actions to keep your heart. I'd like to give an overview first and then give six particular things that we can do, very practical, of how we can keep our heart. Our goal is to improve and preserve our heart in a godly way. To keep the heart is to carefully preserve it from sin, which disorders it. And to maintain a spiritual grace, gracious disposition that fits it for a life with communion with God. So on one hand, we are trying to avoid sin. We are trying to be washed from sin. We are in a battle against sin. And we are trying to keep our heart in a place where we are enjoying communion with God. Keeping the heart should be understood. And here's some wonderfully defining phrases. I love this as an engineer. The diligent and constant use and improvement of all holy means and duties to preserve the soul from sin and to maintain its sweet and free communion with God. So let's take that in three parts. Uh, diligent and constant use and improvement. So the goal when we take actions to guard our heart, what are we doing to constantly use it, to constantly protect it? Because you only have to leave something unprotected for a short while, right, for it to be taken. We had a, a catalytic converter stolen, sawed off a car in our church parking lot and stolen because there was a gap of time when someone wasn't out there. We find that we have to have a diligent and constant use of, secondly, all holy means and duties. And don't we have a wonderful storehouse in our word of these very holy means and duties? We have the preaching of the word. We have fellowship. We have the reading of God's word. David is hiding it in his heart that he might not sin against God. Thirdly, these are to preserve the soul from sin and maintain its sweet and free communion with God. That's our goal, to, to live and to walk Coram Deo in the Lord's presence. That's the overview of the actions. That's the intent of the actions. Let's uh, take on six specific actions that we can do. First one is observe. Frequently observe the frame of your heart. There are many inroads to sin right here within our own heart. We have these gates. We have the eye gate and the ear gate. We can have a desire for security. We have a desire for pleasure. We have a desire for reputation. We have a desire for ease. All these are pathways into our heart where sin can enter in. And we should be observant to find these ways. And how can we put guards at the doorposts of all these entrances to our own heart? And so the question really is, are we guarding the gates? How can we guard those gates? Can we inventory, this is a great way to observe our heart, can we inventory our own affections? Have you looked at yourself, try and get outside of yourself for a bit, look at yourself, where does my heart want to go? What is the inclination of the things I want and how does that create a pathway for sin to enter in? Anything that you desire is, becomes almost like a freeway. Uh, if some of you suffer from migraines, uh, if you look at the occipital lobe, a lot of times people get affected vision. 
It's because the occipital lobe is such a vast processor of information, tremendous amounts of information go through your occipital lobe. Just the fact of it being a pathway makes it an avenue of pain. And a lot of times migraines will come through that. In your own heart, the pathways that you have are lined with your affections and can become an entryway of sin. So we observe it. Observe the frame of your heart. We must know how to keep our own heart. Here's another thing I love about the scriptures. Self-discovery is a wonderful aspect of the Christian life. Now, as I read retirement books and as I've grown up in the world, at first I was kind of repelled by the idea of self-discovery because I always heard of it in a secular context, right? What do I want? How do I express basically what comes down to my selfishness, my desires? Uh, what is self-discovery? People come and say, I'm just trying to find myself. And you know it's not a Christian basis. You know it's them working in their own realm, their own thoughts. It just ends up being uh, misleading and distracting away from Christ. And so I had almost a tendency to want to avoid that. But observing your own heart and in a Christian foundation, self-discovery is glorious. Who are you as a sheep of God, as a child of God? You're in his pasture. You're, you're a citizen of heaven. What does this mean? You have a nature that now desires the things of God rather than the things of the world. What does that mean? Who am I? Why do I battle sin? What's my past? And the scripture leads us on a tremendous self-discovery journey. We don't take it to the end the world does for selfishness. We want to point it all to Christ, but it's glorious. I find much of meditation is the same way. There's some books I've greatly enjoyed, even down to the, the breathing, settling your mind, uh, doing a little bit of relaxation. I've, I've got one of these almost, I think, a engineering OCD mind, right? Where I, there's times where my mind has trouble letting things go. Trial and error, trial and error. It's 2 a.m. in the morning, trial and error. I'll keep going. So we have to learn, and I think meditation is the first step of this, how to settle things quietly. But this also starts off well in many cases, and then there's a road to the secular, and there's a road to Christian observance of it. I found it's wonderful when I quiet my mind, it's almost like clearing a stage, and it's quiet, it's silent. And when I get there, take a verse of scripture, take a truth of scripture, and put it center straight stage and think on it. It's wonderful, it's glorious, it feeds the soul. Where does the world go? It says, settle your mind and then enjoy the nothingness, the oneness with the, the nature, the, the God of the nature. It's, you know, a, a pantheism. And, of course, it just falls off a cliff into a horrible type of meditation. They're looking for nothingness. I'm trying to clear my mind so I can put a scripture truth right in the middle and see it in a clearer light. All this is observing ourselves John Favell says, to not know your own heart is to be a fool at best. And know this, that if you don't know your own heart, you have an enemy in Satan who does. And he is an expert at looking at your affections, looking at how you're built through the ages. He knows how people are made. He knows what works in the realm of temptation, what doesn't. So observe your own heart. Don't let Satan be the only one who has these tactics ab above us. 
And again, there's a, a wonderful place in Christ to find out who we are, observe our own heart, what is the frame of my heart, what makes me discontent. Let's place these at the feet of Christ and move forward. So very powerful. Secondly, under specific actions, humble. Humble yourself. Deeply humble yourself for heart evils and other disorders. We are small creatures. Humbling itself is not necessarily saying, oh, I'm trying to get rid of pride. Humbling itself can simply be, I am laid low by difficulties that my heart faces. There's a passive side and there is an active side. We usually think of the active side, oh, I have a pride that I need to knock down. But there's a passive side too, where some of us are just so beaten down that we don't, we don't know, we don't realize that there can be comfort in just being a smaller creature, if you will. But pride needs to be repented of. Being thankless. Uh, we have pains of the heart that draw us down. We have many infirmities. It's an interesting, the scripture says not only humble yourself, the scripture says when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And so our heart is this wily thing that sometimes needs building up in medicine to bring it to a place where it will commune more effectively with God. Sometimes our own head gets so big that we've got to shrink that down and ask him. I think a, something that's helped me in this journey of seeking to try and be humble is simply seeing the greatness of Christ and let the natural effect of that put you in your place. It's like John Favell has a book called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. And he says, when you put your fear of God first, all the other fears line up under it because you've put it first. It gives perspective. It gives order where there's no order. We take small things and these become big fears to us. But if we put the fear of God first, they will take in order. So humbling, I believe, is the same way. We look at Christ who is the greatest, and there's a natural effect where humbleness comes into that order. When you see him as creator, when you see him as beyond this physical realm, when you see the works and the deeds of the Lord that no man can do, uh, you say, wow, that, that naturally puts me in my place as I'm the recipient of those things. Thirdly, so we have observe, humble, thirdly, pray. When sin has defiled and disordered your heart, quickly enter into earnest supplications and immediate prayers for heart purifying and sanctifying grace. Let's not wait. I mentioned it had been about 11 years before I became Reformed. And I did something. It was actually, I believe it was another brother in the church that said, oh, you're doing something in your life that's called Protestant penance. Have you heard of this? Since I came to Christ on something of an emotional basis, and since I retained a lot of that in my young Christian years, when I would sin, I would sort of beat my, I wouldn't go right to prayer, and I wouldn't come right to Christ. I would spend two or three days making myself feel miserable so that I would have the motivation to truly walk away from this sin and show myself a true believer. And so I was working up an emotional motivation against sin. And I guess I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. It took me about 10 years to figure out this was really doomed from the beginning, having no spiritual power of itself. So I would kind of, I would, I would 
do this form of penance, make myself feel so bad so that I really, I knew I felt sorry about that sin and I would move on. I remember the day when I stumbled on this truth that we should immediately pray when we sin. We should immediately uh, seek to be in communion with our God, our Father. And part of my brain would say, you can't just sin and then get off the hook that easy. But what happened at the same time is that nature within me began to love the presence of the Lord. I began to hate sin. See, my big problem was I wasn't hating sin. I wanted to be cleared of sin, but I wasn't hating sin. And so when I come to Christ immediately and enjoy his presence and his forgiveness, it makes me desirous of it. It makes me actually more thirsty of it than I was before. And this becomes a true rock to stand on, uh, to, to be close with Christ, and to fight our sins. So praying immediately for sanctifying grace. Mr. Bradford said we should be confessing until brokenness of heart is received. And so here we have a, the power of confessing. We, we've done it in this service. We do it personally. Uh, it, very powerful. Even to start where you are, confess your sins, and see where that will move you. And uh, I remember one time driving to work on the 60 freeway. And I was very convicted that I just felt nothing. Nothing of thankfulness. I felt nothing. I, I, must, I don't know. I had coffee that day. It was just an extremely blah day. And I just started praying, Lord, I can't believe I feel nothing. Lord, you have died for me, and my soul is acting almost like nothing happened. I'm sparring with myself in this prayer. Lord, what is it that, why, how can I go forward without this sense of debt and gratitude when you have done so much for me? And I'm sitting here driving down the freeway, and little by little, this is picking away at my heart. And 15 minutes later, I'm like, oh, Lord, you're so good. <laughs> the tears are flowing. I almost had to pull off to the side of the road. And so just starting with your confession, the grace of the Holy Spirit to come in. And maybe you feel dead, so start where you are. Come and pray. Confess it. And the effects are amazing. He is a gracious God to us. And I was overwhelmed with the sense of grace. I couldn't but feel the tremendous delight and weight and debt and attraction to being close to the Savior. Fourthly, very interesting topic. Fourthly, a specific action we can take is to vow. And that probably might raise some eyebrows. Employ strong vows and bonds upon yourself to walk more faithfully with God. So maybe it's my culture, maybe it's my background. Why would I want to take a vow and almost increase the sense of uh, consequence to my own soul? And it seemed a strange phrase at first. But the more you think about it, the more it makes sense. Spurgeon used to say that he would resign from the ministry every Sunday night and he would re-enlist every Monday morning. <laughs> because he was overwhelmed, and, but he sensed his duty. He had to come back to it. And here with a vow, it may sound strange at first I would add something to this. But again, we have to think of this vow in a Christian context, not a secular one. And so this vow, when we think of marriage does it not make great sense, right? When we think of a vow of marriage, 
well, this helps it. This solidifies it. This puts it on a rock. Some make the argument, well, I don't need a piece of paper to show that I have love. No, your love needs to be framed in and stabilized and made to stand for what is right, regardless of how you feel or what your definition of love may be. We, we highly exalt the idea of a vow in marriage because it holds it together. It brings about that security. It brings about that commitment that allows the whole relationship to flourish. And so marriage without a vow has no structure. It's ready just to, to you know, what if you poured concrete without any forms, right? A vow is that forms that blocks it in and builds everything up. So the more we think about a vow, and keeping our heart, the more it makes sense. We have a vow in discipleship to Christ. Take up your cross, deny yourself daily, follow me. R.C. Sproul would say, there is a great sense even in which our worship to God is a form of restating our loyalty to him, of affirming this vow that we will follow, that we will extol you, that you are our king and we are your people. You are our shepherd and we are your sheep. And so the more we think about a vow, the, the, just the more it comes into focus. Now, of course, we take a Christian understanding to vows as well. We should refuse frivolous vows, okay? No Jephthahs here, okay? Jephthah, it was very common in his culture to say, if the gods of the territory will give me victory in this war, then I'll give him this. We, we do not take on frivolous vows. Our, our confession says a vow which is not to be made to any creature, but to God alone, is to be made and performed with all religious care and faithfulness. So if we, in our battle to keep our heart, a place for a vow can be considered, and yet it is to be done with all religious care and faithfulness. It is not to be frivolous, and we should see it. He brings forth this point, it's, it's very good. Fifthly, so we've, we've seen that uh, actions we can take to observe our heart, humble our hearts, pray when sin enters in, employ vows, and, and set our mind on the task at hand. Fifthly, we can employ a holy jealousy to maintain a constant holy jealousy over our heart. It's an excellent preservative from sin. And you know, this also kind of pulls us out a little bit from our heart and say, how do I protect my heart? How do I seal off the avenues of sin? How do I guard the affections? And that just makes me think again, in the Lord's working, he would have you desire things that can be fulfilled. Sometimes our affections lead us to places and give us a thirst for things that cannot be fulfilled. That's the worst of all cases, right? to have a thirst that can never be satisfied. And yet a lot of the seductions put before us in our day and age are those things that cannot be satisfied. The thirst that never ends. You've built up a desire for something that has no solution. When the Lord says, desire these things that are good, it's glorious because he he get, you have the only desire, you have the satisfaction of the desire. So guard your heart that your affections are within what he says is upright and holy to desire. Guard where desires may break loose. Contain the fire while it is small. Here's the value again of observation. If something's beginning to spark up, get the fire when it's small. 
A fire in the fireplace is a wonderful servant. A forest fire coming your way is a horrible taskmaster. And so we see that a holy jealousy over our hearts. I have found in, under this heading that I experience words that I have come to love in a Christian context that the world absolutely hates. It's interesting when you use a word and you love it and the world hates it. Here are some examples. A holy jealousy and looking at these words. I love the word as a Christian. I love the word condescension. That God so high up would bow to my poor state Show me compassion. Show me pity. Have you heard someone say, oh, don't pity me? I love the word condescension because that's God coming down in compassion to my level because he is so high above me. And yet use that word in a secular context. You know, use it in, in the cubicle workland. You are, you're going to see some different responses to it. Other words I love include pity. How about Mortified. We want to mortify our sin. That is a pathway to blessing. That's a pathway to freedom for the believer. How about submission? There's a nice word where the Christian has a, can love it and embrace it and, and see the benefit of it, and the world will scream against it. Uh, jealousy, keeping jealousy over our own heart. Even that phrase, jealousy, uh, many would link it to insecurity. Oh, you're just insecure. But jealousy is a possessive, powerful, protecting love that God even exercises over his people. He is jealous over us with a jealous love. Sixthly, so observe, humble, pray, vow, have a holy jealousy, be mindful. Sense God's presence and set that presence before you. He is always present. We know this as a truth. But our mindfulness of his presence often is what varies. There is a bad basis, by the way. I grew up in this bad basis for sensing God's presence. And it's called emotion. If you sense God's presence by emotion, you are not standing on a rock. You need a better definition of God's presence. Uh, in fact, I have this theory about marriage. I think it often bears itself out. People go on in their marriage, it's new, they have the honeymoon phase, and then it becomes difficult. And here's where our culture says, oh, the passion is gone, I don't think I love you anymore, right? Starting at probably nine months, going to two and a half years, it can all, the novelty wears off, the work of the marriage begins, and people feel like they've lost the love because they've lost the emotion. And the Lord is doing something wonderful here, and I think it's often not recognized. When he takes you off emotion and you love your spouse because you've committed to do so, you're actually building a foundation that will take you much higher, farther, and deeper into the love of this relationship than emotions ever could because you need a real commitment to build a real building. If, if you build a 50-story building, you've got to have a deep foundation. And emotion does not provide a stable foundation, but commitment does. And in this conversion from emotion to commitment, the world thinks it's lost the love. 
but as we see through a vow, as we see through being mindful that God is leading us in this marriage, it just, I almost see it like a castle. And you get to about year four or five, and it's almost like a castle, and it just raises up a floor every year. Every year is better than the one before. And it just, it's a glorious occurrence because it's built now on a solid foundation. But people are sometimes in our understanding that emotion is a good indicator. It's, I think that's part of the problem. So instead of employing emotion in God's presence, in our mindfulness, employ promise as superior to emotion. Sense your closeness with God because of the promises of his word. Now there is some ground to stand on. Your emotions are going to be here. They're going to waver. They're going to, they're going to slide one day. You're going to think they're, they're great the next day. The promises will always stand. They'll always lead you farther. They will always bring you to communion with God. So we've seen something of the foundation, what we're talking about as we look at Proverbs 4.23. I want to read it again just to refresh our minds on it. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Let's look at our third section, reality to keep your heart. The reality is it's very hard. Your heart is wily. Your heart moves in a way that, that sometimes you cannot trace. It's the hardest work indeed. It doesn't take any great effort to go with the flow. It doesn't take any effort to just kind of in a shallow way follow the rules, to do religious duties with a loose and careless spirit. But to tie up your vain thoughts, that's real work. To set yourself before the Lord in a constant and serious attendance upon him, this is going to cost you. It is hard. We pray to this end that we will be able to do this hard work of keeping our heart. Secondly, the reality of keeping our heart is that it has to be constant. It's a constant work, and the work is never done in this life. We have to set ourselves up for a long-standing guard over our heart. Our labor and this life will one day end together in glory until then, guarding your heart is a constant work. Thirdly, it's an important work. It is so important because the issues of life flow from your heart. It's the core. What are your hands doing? They're doing what headquarters tells them to do, what your heart tells them to do. What is your mouth speaking? Your mouth is speaking what is in your heart. The treasure of your heart is what is coming out and being displayed. The contentments we feel, the discontentments we feel, the words we say, the relationships we maintain and don't maintain, all these are following headquarters, following something that are bringing out the issues of life. It's our heart. And so it's incredibly important in the Christian's life. Without this important work, we end up being formalists in religion. I believe it was J.C. Ryle that said, Roman Catholicism has slain its thousands, but formalism has slain its tens of thousands. It's a matter of the heart. It's the issues that pour forth from the heart shows we must be actively guarding it constantly, even though it is a hard work. I'll leave you with this quote from John Flavel. It is for the glory of God, the sincerity of our profession, 
the beauty of our conversation, the comfort of our souls, the improvement of our graces, and the ability to withstand temptation are all causes for great esteem that we should guard our hearts. And so in conclusion, let us endeavor to keep our hearts. It's our understanding, our memory, and our conscience. Let us improve and preserve our communion with God and fight sin. And let us realize soberly, the, the Bible is extremely realistic. It's blessed and it's realistic. It is a hard work, it is a constant work, and it is an important work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so desirous to be found in your presence. No one knows the heart of men like you yourself. It is an open book before you. We find ourselves that we are dismayed and we are blind to many operations of our heart, and yet you give us wholesome and good instruction to set that guard, a double guard, to keep with all keeping our very hearts. Help us in this endeavor. Grow us in this endeavor. Lord, I expect that we will be blessing you for any advancement in this endeavor. You have found us. You walk us forward. You give us great instruction as our teacher, how we bless you and thank you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.